Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plank and Sell Show with Mark. Celebrating its 10-year anniversary, dominating the podcast world. Archives for April 2023. We're taking the week off. We've had a busy month and we just need a week to recoup and re energize. But I decided let's go back to our archives of interviews. So we're going to call this episode the Sports Entertainment Interview Redux, where I air some interviews from our past that I thought were well talked about. Also, one of these is actually um, just by Sal. One of them is me and Sal, and Sal talked about it as one of his favorite moments of our show history. So let's go in order of what you're going to be hearing in the order as it happened. Um, so let's go back to February 4th, 2015, where Sal did me a favor and sat down with Hank Gola, who is um, a big Garfield football historian. Um, I had sent stuff out to the East Coast to give him for his book, and um, Sal sat down for an interview with him, so that's first up. Next up, let's go to July 1st, 2015. The former commissioner of the NWHL, now known as um, the PWF, the Women's Hockey League, um, Danny Ryland, sat down with me and Sal for a really cool interview. And this is the interview Sal said was one of his favorite moments in show history. So listen to that next. Right after that, I sat down with Kevin Eastman, the creator of Team Ninja Turtles, on March 25th, 2016. During, I had this interview thing going on with like wrestling interviews and entertainment interviews back and forth, so you'll be hearing more of those as we go along in the year. Next up, April 22nd, 2016, Aaron Sparrow and James Stefani talk about the Darkwing Duck comics that were going on at the time, so that's there. And then finally, the Creme Little Clem, an interview that I still can't believe I did, and it's even cooler knowing everything happened to you two that you heard about. This is April 28th. 2017, my interview with the one and only William Daniels. It's a fun one. It's really short, but it's really cool. All these interviews are not that long. So sit back and enjoy this, and we'll be back next week for another episode of The Blake and Sasha with Mark. Have a good day, everybody. Fresh cut grass. I'm 
Back in my helmet, cleats and shoulder pads Standing in the huddle, listening to the call Fans going crazy for the boys of fall So I'm sitting here with Mr. Hank And you represent the Daily News And uh, we just had a couple of questions for you so what originally sparked interest in the story for you? Well, I was weaned on, on tales of the 1939 team. It was kind of my indoctrination into sports. If you were a member of the baby boom generation who grew up in Garfield, the first thing your dad told you was that Benny Babula kicked a winning field goal for Garfield to win the national championship in 1939 in mm -hmm. the Orange Bowl. <laughs> That's the first thing you learn. And... Uh, in the 60s, I went to every Garfield football game home and away. They were still good back then. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember beating Clifton in Thanksgiving Day uh, in Clifton Stadium. Uh, first time they'd won, beaten Clifton since 1948. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, I was kind of weaned on Garfield High School football. And one day I was coming back from a game. I covered the, the Patriots up in uh, Foxborough, just driving with nothing else to think about, it's kind of, my mind got around to that game, and then I realized it's the 75th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a great idea to do a story. And then the more I dug into this, the more I uncovered, the more uh, the more facets of this game uh, came to me, and I, I'm actually thinking of probably turning this into a book if I can. It's it's an amazing tale of uh, a slice of pre-World War II life, uh, lost innocence, uh, and uh, just just kind of an historical look at at what what high school football meant to the community mm -hmm. before World War II. I mean, they had 19,000 people for a game at Foley Field against Bloomfield. The winner was going to probably win the state championship. Right. So it's just it's just amazing when you think about all these kids were were the sons of immigrants. Their fa their parents had come over mostly from Eastern Europe and Italy, leaving their parents behind, and these were their kids. They mm -hmm. grew up in the Depression. They didn't have much. And then they ended up going down to Miami High School, Miami, Florida, and beating the best team in the South. So it's an incredible story. Mm -hmm. um, and with it being the 75th anniversary of the game, has there been any long-lasting impact that the national uh, team had on the city? Well, I think everybody in Garfield remembers it. I, a, a friend of mine lives a couple of blocks away here in Parsippany, and it's the same thing. Uh, you know Benny Babula. You know mm -hmm. the story. Mm -hmm. It's like I said, you, we've all been weaned on this. So um, it's prob probably tales of the of, of of the game are probably kind of petering out in Garfield. But if yeah. you're in my generation, you know about it. And even even if you're not a football fan, you probably know about it because it was one of the biggest events that ever took place in the city of Garfield. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, what living players have you been able to get in contact with? There's only two left, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Walter Young is 92. He was All-State, honorable mention. He was an end, played a very uh, very important role in the game, caught a couple of passes, made some defensive plays. Uh, I spoke to him the, week after th the day after Thanksgiving. The, the great thing about Walter is that he made the, the key block on the second Garfield touchdown, which was a naked, rever a naked reverse, which was put in by Art Argauer, a, a real a kind of a Bill Walsh of his day, very cerebral kind of guy. Mm -hmm. Always, ha always, always had a great game plan ready. Uh, Johnny Grembowitz scored on a naked reverse, and it was Walter's job to block Davy Eldridge, who was the fastest player on the Miami team and their offensive star. He would score a 78-yard touchdown in the game. 
And for 75 years, he lived in fear that he clipped them, that he made an illegal block. In fact, after the play was over and Garfield scores, he was looking around for a penalty flag. Mm -hmm. so, and he's always thought that somehow he got away with the clip. Well, I was able to show him the YouTube tape uh, of the game and, uh, and show him that he actually made a good block. It's the first time he ever saw it. Oh. And we ran over that play. I mean, imagine living with this for 75 yeah. years and then being able to see the play, and, and now his conscience is clear. Right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Finally. But it, it, was, it was really cool. Uh, he's a very sharp guy. He still runs his own business and drives to Connecticut Wow. Uh, a few times a week, back and forth to Connecticut. He's living in Waldwick now. Uh, Leonard Macaluso is the other living member of the team, but I haven't had a chance to speak to him. Uh, I, I'm going to do it in the next coming days before I finish this writing writing the story for the Daily News. Uh -huh. So um, I'm anxious to see what, what he remembers about the game. Uh, and unfortunately, most of the guys on the team have passed away. Uh, I, I only wish that it was 20 years earlier when they were mostly all around and I could talk to him about it. Yeah. So I know my dad was at the number 8 school gym, and the legend is that when Babula kicked the winning field goal, everybody jumped up and down at the same time, created a crack in the foundation. <laughs> now, I went to number 8 school the other day. Pete DeFranco's the principal. And uh, we were looking around the gym. All we saw was some cracked paint and some no nothing else. But that's the legend. And it was what we were told by Coach John Hollis. If you if you're from Garfield, you remember Coach Hollis. Uh, that's what he always told us that uh, that when Babula kicked the winning field goal, everybody jumped up at the same time, landed, and cracked the, the foundation of the bridge. That's fantastic. So there you go. Um, any major mega stories that you want to share from that? Oh, there's so many stories. I I, I could. Here are the names that are connected with the game. Okay. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, mm -hmm. uh, Mayor LaGuardia, Governor Lehman of New York, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Grantland Rice, the great sports writer, uh, John F. Kennedy, and, and eventually John F. Kennedy and then Bill Clinton would be the last contemporary mm -hmm. the latest guy because because it just has it just goes in so many directions. I spoke about Davy Eldridge, who was Monk, um, uh, Miami's best player. And again, uh, let's just go back. Gower also worked uh, worked some strategy on defense uh, to combat Eldridge. Now, mm -hmm. Miami worked out of a sh what was called then the short punt formation. It was it was kind of innovated by, by Michigan, and it was kind of like the, today's pistol. Just think of that. Okay. So it was based. It, it was good for teams that were fast and they had a lot of deception. Now Garfield played a six-man line. The entire se the entire season. Now, what Argauer did was he moved his all-state uh, middle guard Johnny Grembowitz off the line as part, kind of a linebacker to spy on Eldridge, and he made a couple of tackle, uh, touchdown-saving tackles during the game, and kind of just limited. Now, Eldridge scored in the seventy-eight-yard touchdown, got around right end, and but that's pro that, but they pretty much contained them because of the way they right. they schemed the defense. Now, Eldridge uh, goes on to star at uh, Georgia Tech and then goes into the Navy. Uh, he fights in Saipan and uh, comes out and finishes his college career like many guys of the era did at, at, at Miami, University mm -hmm. of Miami. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into politics. He's a state senator in Florida for, uh, throughout the 50s. In 1962, he runs for Congress and he's up against Dante Fassell. Uh, in the Democratic primary. Now, Eldridge was a segregationalist, nothing unusual at the time, mm -hmm. especially in the South <laughs> and uh, in Florida. Uh, and he was running against Fassell, who had the backing of President Kennedy. Uh, 
Well, he gets trounced two to one in the Democratic primary. And after that night, they ask him, they ask Eldridge if it's the worst defeat he's ever experienced. And he says, no. On Christmas night in 1939, and he mentioned Benny Babula mm -hmm. kicked the winning field goal to beat us. And that still hurts the most out of anything. Wow. I've, so I, there are stories like that. Uh, Another one, John Grembowitz, who was a terrific player. Again, I uh, also he was moved in a backfield. He scored in the naked reverse, but he was an all-state guard. Wally Tabaka was one of the was one of the running backs, and to get them ready for the game, they scrimmaged uh, Lodi at Passaic Stadium. Now, Bill Piella, famous coach of Lodi, uh, told his uh, told his team they were going to get back in uniform and get. Garfield ready for the game. And they said, we're going to get Babula. And he told them, you keep your hands off that guy. We're on the same team right now. We're just getting them ready. Right. Well, Babula was fine, but Wally Tabaka got hurt in the game, uh -huh. <laughs> in the scrimmage, and hurt his knee. Uh, so what Argauer does is uh, move Grempwitz off the line into the backfield. And he played a key role in the backfield in that game, scoring on the naked reverse and also... Uh, Running the naked reverse to set up, no one knows this, but he set up the winning field goal by Babula, which was 22 yards. Uh -huh. Benny Babula's only field goal of his career. Oh, <laughs> he, he had kicked some extra points, but had never att even attempted a field goal before. Now, everybody thinks it's a drop kick. It was not. It was from placement. John Olavsky held it. Uh -huh. But uh, Grembowitz, uh, as I said, terrific player, made All-State. There were two All-State players, he and Babula. Grembowitz goes on to William & Mary, where he plays on the 1942 team, which was ranked 14th in the country, right. and had lost only to North Carolina pre-flight, which was full of college studs. These were guys that had played college ball and were now going into the Navy, and this is while they were getting their training for the Navy, so it was called pre-flight, but they played football, and right. they were beating everybody up. Mm -hmm. Only lost like 14, I think, nothing to William & Mary. They, they said William & Mary gave him the toughest game of anybody that year. Well, Grembowitz completes his college career, comes out, and now he is going to uh, try to become a, uh, an uh, Army Air Corps pilot. And he is killed in a mid-air collision in Kansas as an air cadet mm -hmm. with, another, with another cadet. They, uh, and his body is flown back to Garfield. And the funeral uh, is at St. Stan's Church. Uh -huh. uh, he lived around the corner from St. Stan's. It's, uh, as everybody knows, or not everybody knows, but Garfield is divided back then, and <clears throat> so to a certain extent now, is divided between Polish and Italian sections. Uh -huh. uh, we used to call it Guinea Heights and Pollock Valley, uh -huh. and nobody really got upset about that. Yep. There was yep. politics in Garfield, yeah. but there was no correctness in Garfield, yeah. and nobody, nobody, yep. nobody, nobody... <laughs> thought anything of it. Well, anyway, uh, Father Vatula, uh, who I remember from when I was growing up, and had sent Christmas blessings down the day of the game, says the Mass. The, the, this, the church is packed to the rafters, and the, uh, the casket is placed on a caisson and uh, flag draped and taken to St. Michael's Cemetery in Lodi. Mm -hmm. And then it passes through the streets of Garfield down some of the same streets that the caravan that took the team to Penn Station for the game passed by. As it goes Palisade Avenue, now Garfield's, uh, Garfield didn't have a high school then, so the upperclassmen went to number eight school. The lowerclassmen went to number nine school. Anyway, they let out classes. And the entire student body of Garfield High School lined Palisade Avenue as the uh, casket came up Palisade. If you think back, it, it's this is one of the moments. I mean, it must have been one of the 
most memorable moments, so obviously a somber moment, but probably one of the most memorable moments in the history of Garfield. Mm -hmm. And this is why I want to do this story, because probably no one even knows about that. Right. And if you just could picture that in your mind, uh, it was almost kind of the, the, the exuberance the, uh, of the 39 team and how it brought just tremendous joy to Garfield. And then flash to this moment where Grembowitz's casket is being mm -hmm. taken to the cemetery and just with, with just people that are beside themselves in grief. Uh, those are a couple of things. They, they'd lost one other guy to the war. Uh, Stanley Saganic was killed um, on a PT boat uh, in New Guinea uh, in the Navy, was awarded the Silver, uh, Silver Star posthumously. Now his uncle, his, I mean, he is the uncle of Jim Saganic, who is now a teacher at the high school. In fact, I broke him in when he was uh, his first class. <laughs> and, uh, but he was an all-state lineman for Garfield in the 60s. And Stanley Saganic was his uncle, was the other, he was a sophomore on that 1939 team and was the other guy lost in the war. But they all fought in the war. They, everybody, almost everyone on that team went into service. So it was kind of a loss of innocence. That 1939 game was probably one of the last things that they could really enjoy for mm. what you might call a childhood. Right. So I mean, there there are just so many. That, that's the kind of thing I was talking about. There's so much so much stuff surrounding this game yeah. uh, that uh, it it to to look back on it to uncover this thing has really been a lot of fun for me. Yeah, and especially absolutely. since I grew up with this game, I mean, this this might be one of the reasons I'm a sports writer, actually, because uh -huh. cause, you know my love of Garfield football. Yeah. And then taking it to other things. So that's pretty much it. Have you been in contact with anyone in the, from the Miami team? No, not yet. Uh, but if I do this book, I plan to go down there and do a lot of research. I've looked up the Miami news articles on online. They're available on Google News, so I've I've done research that way. But I've actually haven't talked to anyone on the Miami t Miami team. Now, the, <laughs> here's another thing. Their coach uh, was Jesse Yarborough. He was from Georgia, went to Clemson. And was kind of a tough guy, and uh, Argauer wanted to uh, use a white ball for the game. They never played at night. He put the kibosh on that. And then also didn't want to allow them to practice at night. Argauer wanted to practice at night, and uh, they eventually did, but he was trying to block that. Mm -hmm. Yarbrough also, according to reports in the Passaic Carroll News, was refusing to send his team on the field hours before the game unless the high school, and you might assume him, he got a cut of the gate, which was going to go entirely toward the infantile paralysis fund. Yeah. So it, there's, that's another interesting yeah. story that I'd like to look into. I haven't had a chance to really dig into that because I've been so much into the Garfield end of things. But there, there are things on their end that are probably uh, pretty, uh, pretty interesting as well. Oh, well, that's great. Um, and uh, final question. In your opinion, in the current climate, do you think this kind of event can ever happen again? No. No. No way. It's... I mean, high school football is still big, but you cannot, you can't go back to that time and recreate it now. It was just a bunch of kids. I mean, these, these as I said, they were all immigrant kids. They were kids of the Depression in one town. Uh, to go down there and to beat a team of this magnitude in this kind of game, I don't think you could see again. I mean, all, all, the, all the current high school teams are football factories. They recruit kids. They're mm -hmm. Don Bosco, St. Joe's, all the New Jersey teams. And it's kind of that way around the, around the, around the country. If it's, uh, if it's a public, public school, it's, it, they draw from a bigger, it's a big regional school. So that's mm -hmm. what you'll see in Texas and everything. But for a small town like Garfield, which actually wasn't the first choice in this game, by the way. It was the third choice. Uh, to be able to... Uh, 
to get over all the conquer all these obstacles and to get down actually play in the game and win the game, you'll never see this type of thing happen again. Mm -hmm. And um, any idea on when this article is going to be posted and yes. any details on uh, for people outside the area? Yes, it will be up uh, on well, it will be up on Saturday. It will be in the newspaper in the Sunday edition before Christmas. Uh, I don't know what the date is. I guess Christmas is the 25th, so I think the 20th, December 20th is a Sunday. It will be in the paper. Now, our online story will go up sometime on Saturday, the 19th. Uh, and it's going to be a two-page spread. Uh, there will be some pictures. And, uh, you know, my challenge will be to, uh, to cram as much of this information into it because I don't think I can fully do it in, yeah. in, in a, in a two-page spread. But I'll try to get the flavor of the game in there. And... Uh, uh, for me, it's a labor of love. It's it's something that I grew up with, and I and it's kind of like I I just want people to uh, kind of look at this and understand this this moment in time. Mm -hmm. So the twenty it's the twenty first Sunday is the twenty first. Okay, the twenty first. So then Saturday would be the twentieth when it would go on, when the online version would go on, and the uh, website is uh, nydailynews.com. Excellent. All right, Hank. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You've shown me some really good articles, and I hope that we were able to help you out, too. Yeah, very, very much so. Thanks. Uh, it was good meeting you, and thank Blake for me, too. I will, and I'm sure he'll hear it. Okay. <laughs> thank you. All right, welcome everybody. We are proud to bring on probably one of our biggest guests here on Interview Sessions. It is the commissioner of the newly formed NWHL, Danny Ryland. Welcome to the show, Danny. How are you doing this morning? Danny, how are you doing? Hi, guys. Yeah, great. How are you guys doing? Yeah, hi. <laughs> uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, first of all, uh, Danny, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and uh, agreeing to do this interview with us. Yes, thanks for having me on. Uh, first and foremost, um, how are you doing? How are you feeling? This must be really nervous, uh, excitement, um, crazy energy going through your body right now. Yeah, it's been such an amazing ride so far, and I mean, the positive response we've had from uh, hockey fans, the media, everyone has just been uh, overwhelmingly positive, and uh, it's a very exciting time for women's hockey. Um, now, is it true that the, w, uh, excuse me, the NWHL uh, came to be because you were uh, denied a team in the CWHL? Um, I wasn't denied a team. Uh, I was just, uh, it was... Uh, battling some adversity and trying to get the proposal and everything in front of the right people. So I think that um, it, it wasn't that I was denied, but it, it was definitely how this whole project started, and then things uh, quickly turned into a bigger idea, and um, it kind of snowballed from there. So um, that was definitely the, the first step in the vision, and um, obviously... For your league, is the Isabel Cup? Yes. 
which is uh, named yep. after Laura Stanley's daughter, Lady Isabel. Um, we're definitely excited to bring in um, some of the history there um, and then kind of create our own tradition from, from here on out. So um, we definitely were inspired by the history of the Stanley Cup, um, just as women's hockey was inspired by the men's game. In as well. So um, for those of you who don't know the story, it's kind of a, a unique story, um, but uh, Lord Stanley was inspired by his daughter Isabel um, skating on the ponds up in Canada to actually get into the game. So um, Isabel was Stanley's first um, kind of inspiration of sort um, into the game of hockey. That's really cool. Yeah, when I read that online, I was I was blown away. I'm like, that is the coolest thing. <laughs> Um, now, I also read on Facebook, I believe, that you are currently holding a contest to design the Isabel Cup. Is that true? Yes, uh, uh, we are. It's one of many fan contests we'll be holding before the launch of the season. And uh, we're kind of looking for um, that inspiration and that the unique touch from a fan to kind of um, get the Isabel Cup designed. So, oh. The Stanley Cup was actually originally a fruit bowl of sort um, that uh, Lord Stanley had at his home. So whether it's a donation from a fan of a, a similar fruit bowl or uh, or something along those lines, uh, we're looking forward to seeing what the fans come back with. Excellent. That's really cool. Um, now, jumping in, into the players, uh, a few days ago we uh, you had your very first free agent signing. Yes. Janine Weber was our first um, free agent to sign, and uh, we are coming this week. Um, we look forward to uh, the continued signings, and our free agency ends August 17th, so all the rosters will be solidified by then. Excellent. And uh, Alex Carpenter went first overall in the inaugural draft, uh, draft uh, the other day, I believe. Yes, uh, she did. Um, she went first overall to the New York Riveters. It's a very strong draft. Yeah, and uh, I, I did not know this. I read that you were also the GM for the Riveters as well. Yes, um, in New York, just adding another hat on. But, um, yes, I'm the GM as well. Excellent, excellent. Um, now, big deal um, from what I've been reading, uh, trying to just get my my notes about all the other uh, women's leagues, uh, you and your league will actually be providing uh, equipment to your players versus the other leagues where they make the players buy their own. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so we will be a professional league, so we'll be providing equipment, paying the players, um, you know, treating them like professional athletes. All right. I have a question over here. Um, the pop, I, I know for me personally, I'm out in the Midwest. We Obviously, you guys are starting on the East Coast. Is there going to be a chance of hopefully with the popularity on the East coming, expanding out to the Midwest? I know like Minnesota, Wisconsin – um, Illinois, we would act, it's a great area here for the sport of hockey. Is there any chance of maybe coming out this way? Oh, for sure. So when we were looking at where we should regionalize our, our league, um, you know, 33% of all U.S. girls and women's hockey registration is based in the Northeast, so New England and New York, and actually 19% is based in Minnesota alone. So um, I, I joke sometimes that we could put all four teams in Minnesota and have just a viable league. Uh, so I think... We definitely have a big focus on making year one as successful as possible within our regionalized league, um, and then thinking about expansion after that. Oh, very cool. And another thing about it being out here, it, what's the? Is there going to be a TV clearance like nationalized for people like us that can't really see it out here? Uh, we're going to be streaming all of our games online, and uh, we're, we're working on 
uh, various broadcast fields, but at the very least, all of our games will be streamed um, through the website. Uh, very, very cool. I'm actually excited about that. Um, so, Danny, does, um, have you had any influence from, uh, from Gary Bettman at all? Yes, uh, we met with uh, Gary a couple of months ago, and um, he definitely supports the women's game from the grassroots level all the way to the pros, and uh, we're, we're feeling out um, exactly what our, our ongoing relationship will look like, um, and I can just say that the NHL is very supportive. Is there going to be any type of partnership between your league and the NHL? Uh, that's one of the things that uh, we're discussing, and, and that is the, the hope one day that we will find a way to work together. Um, but as of right now, no, but hopefully soon. Excellent. And uh, another question that actually uh, one of my friends was asking, uh, I live in New Jersey, so I'm right in the area here, and uh, we were curious to know um, when tickets are going to be going on sale. We are still finalizing our schedule, and as soon as we're ready to announce the schedule, tickets will be available um, at the same time, so in the next couple weeks. Um, do we have a tentative, maybe around tentative date on when the season might begin? Will it be like in October or November? October 11th is the first home game um, for Connecticut and Buffalo, so the first puck drops for the NWHL season will be October 11th. And uh, I have one final question for you, Danny. Um... What is next for the NWHL? Is there something that you're currently working on now um, to, to get the, the league rolling before I know first puck drop? Yes, uh, we have a few more free agency camps coming up. Um, so we have a Canadian tour Jan uh, July 6th to July 9th. We're um, doing hosting camps in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and Windsor. And then end of July, we're hosting an international camp in Boston. And uh, we have players flying in from Russia, Germany, Japan, a handful of uh, different countries uh, to try out for the NWHL. Okay. I got two quick final questions. Um, the one thing I actually was asked about from one of our associates over at a, one of the Facebook pages, they wanted to know merchandise because they're looking forward to picking up some shirts and some hats for this. What yes. word on merchandise? <laughs> We are currently working on our merchandise situation, so uh, we hope to open our online store very soon um, and get the merchandise to the fans. There's been an overwhelming response from the fans wanting to um, jump on some merchandise, so we want to make that available as soon as possible. And also, I know um, for a lot of um, people that know women's hockey know from the Olympics, is there going to be a difference between the Olympic hockey style and what we see in this league, much like the Olympic is different from the NHL. We're going to play in the 2018 Olympics, so the quality is going to be just up there. And um, besides that, we're playing by the same Olympic rules. Um, the ice will be smaller than an Olympic sheet, but um, besides that, it's going to be um, par with the Olympics. All right, excellent. So, um, again, Danny, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, um, to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, hopefully we can get Not a problem. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, hopefully we'll be uh, able to get to some games. I mean, I'm like 20 minutes away from Brooklyn, so hopefully I'll be able to go to some Riveters games. Perfect. Look forward to meeting you. <laughs> thanks again, guys. Talk to you soon. Scream out the sewer like laser beams Get right with the show
Hell Shack Pizza Kings. Can't stop these radical dudes. The secret of the ooze made the chosen few. Emerge from the shadows to make their move. The good guys win and the bad guys lose. Raphael's got the most attitude on the team. Michelangelo, he's one of a kind. And he noticed where to find it with his party time. That's a splinter title of every single skill they need. The B1 lead me, greedy critical team. Alright, let's bring on the creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the legendary Kevin Eastman. Kevin, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for taking time out. Um, first things first. Um, I actually have to say my son is seven years old, and it's been fun bringing him into this world of the Turtles world with the Nick show. So it's actually really cool to have that generational gap in this house. It's really fun to do this. So, I I, you know, actually, I, I adore and I love hearing that because it's really it's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me, you know, at the end of the day, that it worked in the first place, um, you know, 30, now 32 years ago. And the fact that it's uh, kind of resonated with a whole new audience is like, you know, it's it's mind-blowingly cool. And it's, you know, because you, at the end of the day, you can't tell kids, like when you were a child, you couldn't tell you what was cool. And right. you can't tell kids today what was cool. They make up their own mind. And I take that as such a huge compliment that they, um, that, that they find something they love in the turtles even today all, after all these years. Yeah, exactly. And um, well, one thing I have to say, which, as you said it yourself, you didn't think it was going to work. Did you ever think that we'd be here in 2016 still talking about the turtles? It's so crazy <laughs> to me. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness, no. And In fact, you know, when, um, I was uh, uh, thinking just the other day that, you know, Courtney, my wife, who she runs the whole kind of the business side. She does all the shows, the promotions, and all the different things we do. And we, we did the... Uh, 2014 tour which was you know 10 you know the, the 30th anniversary of the turtles that's how i started like my, my slide show presentations and that kind of thing it was like i can't believe 30 years later i'm still here talking about turtles this is fantastic and and i blame all of you you know and thank you and thank you and thank you um but yeah it's 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 quite astonishing to to be here you know you know 32 years later still talking about turtles and having you know the best time of my life well, the, like I was mentioning, the current Nick show, I have to give credit, it is one of the most unique shows I've ever watched, and maybe it's the fact that I literally watched a story progress over two years, which I've never seen before in a comic show. How much input did you have in the creativity behind that? Because that's such an awesome concept. I've never seen that before. Well, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm sorry? Oh, I didn't say anything. You're good. Oh, no, sorry. I think we got just... I'm getting a weird echo. That's okay. It's on my end. Don't worry about it. No, I was just going to say that um, um, Ciro Neely, who is the ex main executive producer, the main kind of creative driving force, although there's, you know, his army of people, you know, Brandon and, and Peter and so Peter Hastings and, and, and Brandon, uh, who, who make this show possible. Um, but created, uh, Ciro was really the driving force behind the show, and he grew up as a... Uh, uh, a fan, you know, uh, his dad owned a pizza place in Philadelphia where he grew up. Uh, uh, he grew up uh, 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 reading turtle comic books, going to see turtle movies and watching the turtle cartoon show. So you couldn't have picked a better guy um, to spearhead it. And he really wanted to uh, create a a new turtle universe on the one hand, but still 
you know, pay the love and respect to the original series, but you know, hit the reset button, sort of, you know, like the first episode when they come out of the sewer for the first time, they have pizza for the first time, they meet April for the first time, who's a younger April, and all those kind of things. Uh, he wanted to re- re- pay his respects to the original, but also take it into a new place. And I, I think the the new Nick series is fantastic. It's it's funny. The martial arts is awesome, uh, and the storylines are fantastic. I, I I really enjoy it. It's one of my favorite versions of the turtles out there. Well, I, I'm excited about the big crossover episode coming up with the '80s and the current show. Where did this concept come from, and and how weird is it that Rob Paulson is talking to himself? <laughs> that's good you know i just um rob paulson who's you know fantastic who was our original Raphael, you know from the series and now he's donatello but he's like you know it's funny it's like i've done shows with the original cast voice cast of the turtles and they're the most awesome the sweetest guys on the planet and they were really the ones that gave the original turtles their voices and i love being around them and, and i have so much pride and 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 you know, we all have we share the mutual love of the turtles, but the the new series too. It's like you look at, uh, you know, Seth Green and and Sean uh, Austin and uh, and uh, Rob and and uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the guys that bring them to life now, they're just as good. And I think they're, you know, Greg Sipes to me is, um, you know, I, I love every version of Michelangelo, but to me, Greg Sipes, I guess probably because I met him as a person. I know all of them, but when I first met Greg Sipes, um, he seemed like a Michelangelo that. Did, he seemed like a real life Michelangelo. He like he didn't have to do that much acting <laughs> to become Michelangelo. Like he was already Michelangelo. But um, I love them, especially Sipes. I mean, they're all these guys really uh, breathe life into our characters, and um, you know, uh, you know, it just it's we're lucky to have them as part of the team. It's it, they, they do a great job. Um, my brother-in-law, who is actually my movie geek on our show. He actually got worried when I said there's another crossover episode because he didn't like the Turtles Forever crossover. For those people who are going into not liking that crossover, what did you tell people? Because that was a, I did not like that episode either personally, but I am not one of the people that holds a grudge, but he is. So what do you tell people like that who are looking at that really bad crossover episode to this one? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is I, I love that episode. Really? Okay. I'm not a fan of that episode. <laughs> It's funny because, you know, you know it's just, it, when you look at, like, um, you know, when I look back and I look at, like, um, you know, when I grew up reading comic books, you know, I read, you know, you know X-Men, Avengers, uh, you know, I, I, uh, Daredevil, which was my all-time favorite comic. And you always saw different creative teams that came in and, and did their their take or their spin or their version of, of uh, some of your favorite characters. And some you liked less, some you liked a little more. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it was still your character and you still love them. And in so many ways, I look at some of the turtle universe, um, things that there was some turtle, uh, entertainment or comic book things that we did that I didn't like as much, but I still like them. Right. But when, uh, right. um, you know, when, uh, four kids who produced the original 2000 series, which, uh, uh Pete spearheaded and edited and, and did all the creative on when they pitched me the idea of this turtles forever, I said, you know, this is either going to be the best idea in the world or the worst idea in the world. Uh, in the end, I, I thought it came out really good. And what's funny is uh, when I talk to fans out there, uh, it's one of their favorites. They love the fact that you got to marry, you know, the 2000 Turtles, the Edge of the Turtles with the, you know, I call them the 80s Turtles um, and then the original Black and Whites. But, yeah, that, that one's a real fan favorite. Okay. Okay. Well, it was, it 
Well, the new movie franchise right now, I know a lot of negativity. What do you say to How do you feel about that negative reaction? I know it was like the Razzie Award for killing the Turtles' last new franchise movie, and I didn't understand why. What's your reaction to that? Because what are your reaction to the negative reaction? Well, you know, that's, it, it, it's tough. It's because it's like, you know, uh, um, you know, I think about like, you know, characters that I grew up very passionate about, you know, uh, when I was a kid. It's like, you know, there were versions of, um, you know, uh, you think of the early superhero movies, the early Captain America movies or some of the even the early, you know, Roger Corman, Fantastic Four movies. Some of those things were horrible. Um, but then you look at like, you know, to me, like what Josh Whedon did with the Avengers movies, uh, um, for, for example, it, it was like the best superhero movie ever. You know, I love the Captain Americas. The Winter Soldier was fantastic. I can't wait for Civil War. Um, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, so, you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, the negative reaction to, say, the first Turtle movie it wasn't exactly the, the 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 perfect version that the fans wanted to see, but I thought it had some great qualities in it. Um, I thought it was fun. I thought they kept a, a lot of the heart and soul from the you know the the turtle characters were still there. Um, but I think that you know um, whatever fans might have been sad about or unhappy with with say the the first movie from 2014, I think they're going to really fall in love with uh, what David Green did with the second movie because he. He actually reminds me of uh, Ciro Neely, uh, who does the Nickelodeon series, and that uh, David grew up as a fan of the Turtles. So I think his his love and passion for the characters is going to probably make the second movie more in line to what fans are used to seeing. But you know, anything successful, you know, it's you know, there's there's positive and there's negative, and you know, we at the end of the day, we just try to do the best job we can. Well, it's funny because I think a lot of people look back at the original Turtles movies, which I love. I grew up with them. I absolutely love them. But, like, yes. what did you want? Did you want that movie again? Because that's a whole different franchise. It's a whole different world. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But it's a whole different world. It's a CGI world now. Maybe it's because it's too CGI. Maybe that's what people are having a problem with. I don't know. You're right. We're in a world now with all these comic book movies. And in, do you almost feel like the Turtles might get lost in this? weird flood of comic movies right now because like I said Civil War is out Deadpool just came out now and we're in this weird weird world of all the comic movies do you ever have a feeling that Turtles might get lost well you know it's like I think there's room for everybody you know in fact that you know I watched uh, uh, I watched Deadpool and it was like you know for example I mean, I love Deadpool. I thought they were, but my, you know, not my favorite character. But I like Deadpool comics. But when I went and saw the movie, it was like, holy smokes! This is a fantastic superhero movie. It was almost like the, the anti-superhero movie, if you will. Um, but I thought it was just spot on and perfect. And it was something, you know, you. It's almost like you couldn't have had Deadpool as a movie without the other superhero movies coming out and working before. If you follow, you know what I mean. It's like. You had to have people accept that universe of there's superheroes and there's X-Men and there's this to make Deadpool work. Um, but I think that um, ultimately it really comes down to the fans. I mean, the fans that turned out, I think the last time I read uh, um, Deadpool was had done like 700 million worldwide. That speaks to a whole legion of fans that, you know, maybe a fraction of them had actually read the Deadpool comic book. You know, their first exposure to the character might have been this movie. Um but I think that there's plenty of room for, um, you know, all, all these, you know, the superhero movies coming out. And I'm going to see all of them. I can't wait to see, you know, uh, Batman versus Superman this week. 
you know, this is our world. This is our genre, and I and I live it and eat and eat it and breathe it like you guys do. And and I can't wait for all of them. You know, some I'll like a lot, some I won't like as much, but I'll like them all. I'm happy to see them. Uh, I have to actually tie one thing in because it is WrestleMania season for us on our show, and Sheamus, WWE superstar, will be in the Turtles movie, which I I'm excited to know that because I love I, I love when wrestling gets intertwined with pop culture. How do, how do you feel about that kind of stuff? I mean, these mega stars from a different world coming into this world. That's really cool to me. You talk kind of like, uh, you know, uh, Courtney, our son, Courtney and I's son, is, is going to be 10 this summer. And uh, uh, we've, we, whenever there's uh, a WrestleMania kind of event that comes to San Diego, we take him to see him. And he was blown away. So we took him to a WrestleMania event two years ago. The last one that uh, came here was uh, in Seamus was there. Yeah. He's Seamus is one of. I mean, I've got a Seamus action figure in my son's room next door. So the fact that um, uh, Seamus is uh, you know one of Shane's favorite fans, uh, one of Shane's favorite characters, and the fact that he's going to be a character in the new Turtle movie is like you know he loves it, and I think it's cool. I mean, I love that you know Judith Hogue is playing. A, she's going to have a cameo role. She was the April from the first movie. Cool. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, St- Stefan Amell from uh, you know Arrow is going to be Casey Jones. I mean, Megan Fox. I mean, that's the cool part. Is like you know, you know, we want to see like you know that those kind of characters. Um, you know, the, the known people come into the, our universe and support our characters. So it's pretty pretty cool. I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. That is really really cool. Thank you very very much. I really appreciate. This is an honor. This is an absolute honor for me. It's- the little kid in me is so ecstatic that we have this conversation today. <laughs> so, thank you so much for <laughs> well, taking I, time out. No, oh, thank you. No, I, I appreciate it. I really enjoy talking to you guys and uh, enjoy reaching out. So, yeah, I, I appreciate your time on a Friday especially and hope you have uh, some uh, some relaxing and fun plans for the weekend. I'm actually off to a hockey game in like an hour. So, <laughs> I'm going to go off to fun <laughs> right now. So, thank Works. you so much. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> done this because I kind of took a month off, a month off for Mania season, but here we are. We are in April, and it's a big time here. On the line currently, I have the writer of the Dark Ring of Death comic series that returns to comic stores this month. This is huge. Aaron Sparrow. Aaron, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, anytime. Um, before we get started, I, let's just clarify this for everybody listening. What is the official release date of the new issue one of the Dark Ring of Death series? Uh, official release date is next uh, next Wednesday, which is uh, April 27th. Yeah, that is a big deal. I am excited. I am ecstatic. As a big Darkwing Duck fan, 
Um, actually, the funny part is you're officially now the third guest, Darkling Duck, fourth Doctor Darkling Duck related guest I've had on this show. <laughs> you're the fourth. Really? Person. Yeah, we've had Jim Cumming, Katie Lee, and um, Tad Stones on the podcast throughout the last couple of years. Oh, so now now you're now you're slumming it with me, huh? Well, we have the comic, <laughs> now we got the comic book tie, so it works out nicely. I mean, it works out really cool. So. They're 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 great guests. Um, I, I I'm gonna have to go back and listen to those uh, those podcasts because they are always fun. Yeah, I had yeah, I had Jim on twice, which is also cool. So very cool. Um, now, as I mentioned, it's really exciting to be a fan. I, would you? I would never have thought four and a half years ago, and the uh, that now we're talking about Darkwing Duck again. How exciting is that for you? Uh, it's uh, we're we're pretty psyched. Um, you know, we we never gave up. Uh, we never gave up on the idea that uh, that we could get the series going again, that we could uh, get it going through another publisher, and we could, uh, you know, we could really, you know, do some of the things that we wanted to do that we never got a chance to. Um, you know, we're James and I are, uh, you know, James Silvani, the artist on the series. He and I are, uh, you know, we're too dumb to quit. So, uh, you know, we we felt pretty good about it. There were some times where it seemed like it wouldn't happen, or it was going to happen somewhere, and it fell through. But uh, it finally all came back together. Well, what can you tell us about the um, publisher that now is doing Darkwing Duck? That don't, people don't know. People don't know what's going on here. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a small startup publisher, uh, Joe Books, uh, out of Canada. And uh, they've got the Disney license for basically the, all of the properties that, uh, that IDW does not. So IDW has, like, uh, can reprint uh, stories with the standards characters, which is you know, Donald Duck, uh, Uncle Scrooge, um, you know, Goofy, Chippendale. Um, in their you know standard character formats, and Joe Books has the rights to the characters um, you know that are outside of that. Uh, but there's some crossover there because you know technically they have the rights to characters like Uncle Scrooge in Ducktales, um, as, as long as it's you know a Ducktales uh, a Ducktales book in the Ducktales universe. Uh, Joe Books has the license for that, and uh, they have the license for Darkwing Duck, which is you know what James and I are doing. All right, now joining the conversation, the man behind the. The other man behind the Darkwing Duck series, let's bring on James Savani. James, how are you doing this evening? Yeah. Oh, well, besides being frustrated with my uh, my uh, MacBook combination toaster oven here, I think I'm okay. <laughs> well, um, we were actually just discussing the beginnings of the Darkwing, the Darkwing Duck series, The Duck Knight Returns. So I actually was asking him how you guys got started doing that. So you guys can go ahead. Oh, how did we... How did we get started doing this? Uh, well, I was doing some uh, other comics for Aaron at the time, and uh, uh, he, he uh, I, I think I was doing Muppets at the time, and he said, hey, uh, we, you know, we've got an all-over Disney license here. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you throw together a couple extra covers for me? And I think you had me do what? Finding Nemo and The Incredibles, and uh, I think otherwise, just for, just for giggles, why don't you throw in a Darkwing Duck one, too? See what you can do with that. And... and you know, Darkwing Duck. Geez, I haven't thought about that in twenty years. But okay, well, what the heck? Let's let's see what I can do. And and he liked that. And uh, I, I was already assigned to do another Muppet comic at the time. He goes, Yeah, we're going to drop you off that and uh, going to put you on the Darkwing Duck comic. And it kind of the rest is history. Wow, that's that's pretty cool, Aaron. Now I'm not throwing to you on the same conversation here. Your thoughts, well, Aaron. it's funny. Let me. Uh... Let me just uh, let me jump back a little bit. Um, you know the way that uh, the way that um, I ended up working with James was um, we were uh, we were doing a Muppets comic and it was behind schedule and so I wanted to bring in another artist and it just so happened that uh, James had posted some Muppet samples on uh, one of the forums 
uh, you know, saying that he was a he was a fan of what Roger Langridge was doing on the Muppets title at the time, and uh, so he'd drawn this little two-page comic with uh, Louis Zealand and his boomerang fish. And um, Amy Meberson saw it and contacted me and said, "Hey, have you seen this artist that that posted? He's really really good." And uh, I uh, I checked it out, contacted him, and uh, was like, "Please come work for me. <laughs> I need." I need as much I need as much talent in the pipeline as we can get to keep things on time. That's and uh, James delivered a thirty or a uh, twenty-two page comic um, in two weeks, and it looked gorgeous. And he sold every joke, and so I knew immediately that I wanted him on the Dark Book, uh, the Darkwing book that we were developing. As and, and his only promise to me was, uh, as long as you never make me do a whole comic in two weeks again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's that's pretty cool, actually. Um, so the way that the way that I actually came to the project was uh, was interesting. Um, we, uh, you know, I had uh, I had started at uh, at Boom, who had the license at the time, and uh, during my interview, they mentioned, "Oh, well, you know, we want you to, you know, head up the uh, the Disney standards um, that we have the, the licenses for." And I said, "Well, if we've got the Disney license, do we have uh, do we have Darkwing Duck?" And uh, they asked me what that was, and so I explained it to them, and. Uh, and you know, it was just kind of it was just kind of a thing like ah you know I don't think we're I don't think we want to do that, and uh, so I just pushed for it for months and months until I think they were sick of hearing about it and uh, you know gave us a four issue uh, miniseries. Um, but I'm not sure if, if we were meant to succeed or if it was just like you know fall on your face and we won't have to hear about this anymore. But uh, you know we knocked it out of the park and uh, and the rest is history as they say. I, I don't know if you heard me. I said blasphemy for not knowing what Darkwing Duck was. That's that's blasphemy. <laughs> well you know some. Sometimes you get a license because you think that it's going to boost your profile, and you're not, you know, you're not really interested in in what it is or, or what it's about, and uh, you know. But uh, fortunately, you know, you uh, you can hire people who do, and uh, and they'll try and make the best of it. Very cool. Well, I was actually thinking with the Darkwing Duck thing, how did you guys get the Ducktales cast in here? Because that's something major for like massive crossover appeal that never happened on television and always wanted to. How did that come about? You know, we knew it was something that the fans really wanted, and uh, and James, uh, you know, from the day that he came on the project, was, can I draw Scrooge? Can I put Scrooge in this? You know, can we do Uncle Scrooge? So, you know, it became one of those things where it was like, it's a logical, there's a logical connection there that the fans have always, you know, talked about because obviously... Or, or just to get me to shut up about it, as <laughs> as everything else with Duckwing, Darkwing Duck seems to... It seems to happen. Exactly. It's just, you know, oh, if we stop talking about this, just do it. Um, <laughs> no, we, we, had, we had planned that from, from the beginning to have, uh, you know, to have Scrooge interact because it was something that we as fans wanted to see as well. And uh, we knew that the fans would, would go nuts for it. And, um, you know, so we got to do, like, lots of cool little Easter eggs like that. And, uh, you know, having, uh, revealing that uh, Launchpad had tried to work for the Rescue Rangers at one point. And, you know, it was all a, a sense of, you know, just a, an irreverent sense of fun that we wanted to bring to the series. Yeah, that is pretty fun. I, I have to admit, by the way, um, I do have the omnibus that came out, and my son actually, he doesn't read many things. He went through the comic book cover for cover. Absolutely loved it. That says a lot. You know, my son is um, seven years old, and he went through that thing, and he loved it. Oh, that, that is excellent. I hope he was skipping his schoolwork to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know why? I might be able to wrap that into reading. When the new comics come out, I might be able to tie that into school reading. I'm not gonna lie. I, well, I'll try. <laughs> Just gonna be reading to read it again. So, um, actually, you brought it up to TV shows. What's your history with the Disney Afternoon? Like, did you watch it growing up like I did? Um, I mean, with me, I was a, a huge Ducktales fan um, because my the, the Carl Barks comics were were 
my first comics that I actually ever paid money for growing up. I, I think I was five at the time, and you, know, you get a little allowance, and uh, I, I threw my quarters at every one of those uh, multi-packs of the old Gold Key comics at the time, where you used to get, uh, uh, what was it, like a, a, an issue of Uncle Scrooge, an issue of Donald Duck, an issue of the Beagle Boys, and uh, uh, an issue of the Mickey Mouse comics all in one pack, and uh, I, I would just devour those at the time and uh then when i saw there was a ducktales tv show I, I i just went nuts and i watched like crazy every episode there was and then you know that eventually led into darkwing duck and and uh uh tailspin and just uh, i wasn't as big a fan admittedly of the original shows like say maybe uh oh i don't know bonkers you know something that i didn't have a history with but but the ones that uh were recognizable to me. I, I just uh, every it was an every uh, every day afternoon event for me. What about you, Aaron? Uh, I actually <laughs> I started watching Gummy Bears when it first came on. So did I. Yeah, and uh, you know it's like I started watching that uh, with my my uh, my little brother, and then uh, you know when Ducktales came out, we were we were psyched because you know we'd read Uncle Scrooge comics, and you know we were a big fan of that, and getting to see that brought to TV was was amazing, and then we just basically stuck with the. Entire Disney afternoon up through. Uh, I, I think. I, I think when they hit Bonkers and Quack Pack is when I kind of okay. stopped watching. I mean, I'm not. I'm not making a. Not making a judgment on on those two shows. I'm just saying that's that's kind of where I was. I was out and onto other things in life. But uh, man, Darkwing Darkwing was always my favorite because uh, you know I just like the. I liked the attitude. I like the fact that it brought a more slapstick kind of uh, you know sensibility with the with the falling anvils and you know the Warner Brothers type uh, type humor. It was really a first for for a Disney cartoon. So, you know, it really, it really stuck with me. And I just, I knew, I mean, I'd always had, like, in the back of my head, like, if I ever got a chance to bring back Darkwing Duck, this is what I do. And, and it just, it, it happened, which is unbelievable. You know what's funny? It's um, the Darkwing Duck, and I always ask, what's your favorite Disney character? And the first thing I say is Darkwing Duck. And I'm always asked, why? Because it's the superhero. And I, we didn't really have superheroes in Disney at the time, like they do now. So it's almost like, do you understand what I mean? It's like, back then... There was no Disney superheroes like there. Yeah, like Darkwing Duck. He was the first. He, uh, I, I, you had, I, had, you had I, super good. I beg to differ on that. Actually, and, uh, and and I, 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 you know, I told you about those old uh, those old stacks of comics I used to get. Right. Second favorite after Uncle Scrooge was Super Goof. Oh yeah, Super Goof. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yep. Yeah. yeah and and we were we were tangentially aware of the Duck Avenger, which was mostly uh, you know mostly being printed in uh, in Europe, but. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of knew a little bit about that. But, yeah, it was, it was the first, like, you know, really, it, I mean, the first cartoon that we really got. True. That really hit the mainstream was Darkwing Duck. Now, I actually would like to know, the, who was influenced with it to kind of make it, like, almost like a Batman motif, especially with that first series? Uh, I'm sorry, what's what's the question? Um, well, who actually decided, let's do, like, a Batman motif in that first, that first issue, the Duck Knight, following the oh. Duck Knight. Oh, that was always, I mean, I'd always had that in the back of my head, that wouldn't it be fun to parody, you know, I just always had that image of Darkwing coming down with a lightning bolt, uh, like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. And, you know, when you have a character that's returning to, you know, the public consciousness, you know, some 15 to 20 years later, um, it just seemed like a lot of fun to parody that. I knew that, you know, people would get it right away. And, uh, you know, when I asked James to do it, he turned in two versions of it, one of Darkwing coming down very seriously, much less. The, uh, the Miller cover and the other of him getting hit by lightning and uh, you know as soon as I as soon as I saw the cover I was like well one, one of these is our San Diego Comic-Con exclusive 
And uh, it was actually the first, uh, the first comic that uh, Boom Studios had ever offered at a convention uh, that completely sold out. Wow, that is, that's actually pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> really impressive. Um, okay, this is the fan now talking. Um, it's actually, I'm also, I am a big fan of The Flash, so this is pretty funny to me. What was the motive and the idea behind the multiple Darkwing Ducks? Because that was one of the weirdest storylines I've ever read in a com- in Disney comic like that. What was the influence behind that? Well, you know, originally we were only going to have four issues. Um, and then when the first issue sales came back, they were so good that they, they uh, greenlit it as a regular series. So, you know, originally the idea for the second arc was going to be kind of a father-daughter arc where um, Drake is having to deal with the fact that Goslin was wearing the Gizmo Duck suit. So it's the person that he loves the most in the, uh, in the costume of somebody that he can't stand. And, uh, you know, so we were going to play around with that, and, and Steelbeak was going to be the main villain. But um, once, you know, everybody was really excited about uh, about the new series, and, and especially when the third issue cover was revealed, which was kind of a red herring, which had, we had Negaduck on the cover, so everybody thought, oh, obviously Negaduck's the character behind everything, when, uh, in fact, it, uh, it turned out to be Taurus Bulba. Um, spoiler alert, by the way. Spoiler alert. <laughs> a, little, a little late, but come on, the book is six years old. If you haven't read it, I, I, am I really spoiling anything? True. <laughs> and if, and so, if, you know um, what? Let me pluck something real fast. If you want to get the omnibus that I do own, um, the BlakeAndSalShow.com Amazon link at the top of the page. Go buy it there. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, so we knew that people wanted Negaduck, so it just quickly became like, okay, well, the second story needs to uh, needs to be the return of Negaduck, and we just decided that since you know, it's always fun to just flip the story that you just did on its head. So we'd gone from a city without a Darkwing Duck. To you know, we decided. Well, let's now do the city with too many Darkwing ducks. <laughs> and uh, I originally, I remember originally, there were there were about seven that we had like talked about at the very beginning, which um, Sabrina drew on the cover uh, on her first, uh, I think it was her second cover for us. Um, you know, she like sumo Darkwing and uh, you know space Darkwing and and all these you know like the Golden Surfer Darkwing based on the Silver Surfer. You know, we had like seven that were sketched out, and then. Uh, when James came back, James said, "You know, well, how many, you know, how many dark wings can I throw into this thing?" And I told him, "Do do as many as possible because the story is called Infinite Dark Wings." Um, I just didn't realize how absolutely crazy he was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James, um, bowling ball, dark wing, really? <laughs> what? <laughs> what, what? Well, then you shouldn't have called it Infinite Dark Wings. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the seven ten split that you can't pick up. <laughs> But people think we're making that up. That actually happened, you know? Yeah, no, there actually is a bowling ball Darkwing in, uh, in Crisis on Infinite Darkwings, which uh, is uh, is in the omnibus, which, as we as we said, you can you can get on Amazon right now. Yeah, 416 it, pages for uh, for 20 bucks. You can't beat it. Yeah, definitely. I got, actually, I picked it up at a comic book store, which was really, really funny to walk in. Do you have the Darkwing Duck comic book? It looks to me like I had two heads. I'm like, okay, I'll find it myself. <laughs> but they had it. They did See, have so it, so I'm very happy to have Thank it. Thank you, retailers. Yes. Um, it just sometimes you just gotta go to a comic book store and pick it up yourself. So, um, the original run, I know, I, it kind of did not have ended abruptly. Whatever happened with Boone's, Boone Studios and that comic guy's kind of ending? Uh, well, you know, they, there's, I mean, I don't know. It's how much, how much of this do you want to get into? But, um, it's, uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, these comics are licensed out by Disney to various companies and there's you know rules and and regulations that you have to follow when you're uh you know when you're dealing with the licensor um 
and uh, you know there was there was some things that that weren't uh, that weren't done. There were some books that were to be published that uh, were canceled and and that kind of uh, violated the well, kind of it, it violated the uh, the contract. And so um, it just got to a point where Disney said, you know what, this, the relationship's not working out, and um, and you know they they decided to bring them bring them back. And there was speculation for a while that that Marvel wanted to do them, but uh, you know Marvel basically does their own <laughs> does has quite a line of their own books uh, that they. Uh, and they just, they just don't have the bandwidth for, for doing a bunch of Disney titles and didn't have the desire, so it went back to licensing, and that's how Joe Books picked it up. Okay, then. Well, um, when did you, actually, when did you find out about Joe Books picking this up? Because that was really exciting news when it broke. Well, you know, it was funny. Um, we were actually uh, working with uh, a friend of ours, uh, Jesse Snyder, and his management company to, uh, to pick up the Disney license ourselves, and we were using uh, an intermediary, uh, Jesse Post, who was... Uh, our liaison at Disney when uh, when we were doing the books at Boom, and he called us one day and he said, "Hey, there's another there's a Canadian company that's looking to pick these up, and they you know want to pick you guys up to obviously to work on the you know on the new title." And so at that point we said, "Oh well, that's you know that's fantastic. Let's do it." And uh, you know Joe Books contacted us. Um, Joe Books is uh, the publisher is uh, Adam Fortier, who was VP of New Business at Boom at the time that they had the license. And uh, so he had put it together and remembered us and, uh, and gave us a call. So, you know, we, we said yes, because what else would we say? <laughs> That's very true. That's very, very, very true. So, um, what else are you on anything? Why don't you give something, uh, tell us, what's, the, what's this first um, story going to be about? James, why don't you tell us? Because you're the, you're the writer here. What's the first story? Well, actually, Adam, uh, I mean, uh, Aaron, being the writer. Oh, sorry. Would, I would probably I'm be sorry. The... That's my fault. That is do you thought. want me to do it? You want me to? Do you want me to? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm talking too much. Yeah, it was a brief, brief synopsis. Um, you know, the first, the first time we we relaunched Darkwing, we did it with like a really slow burn. He hadn't been Darkwing in a while, and we just like sort of slowly reintroduced, uh, you know, longtime fans to his world and to his characters, and and you know, tried to like bring new readers on board as well. Um, you know, this time we decided to do exactly the opposite. We just, we push everybody into the deep end of the pool, um, right away. So, you know, you get a big, uh, a big story that's set inside the, uh, the St. Canard prison, uh, which is, you know, this new prison that they built that's supposed to be escape proof. And, uh, Darkwing shows up for the ribbon cutting and ends up getting trapped inside with, uh, with all of his greatest villains. So you get to see, you know, an introductory, you know, it's like a nice little introductory story, story if you're a new reader, um, because you're going to get, you know, to see his, his life as an adventurer, his life as a father, uh, his life as, you know, an annoyed neighbor to the Muddlefoots, and then we, uh, we jump into the meat of the main story, which is uh, getting to see so many of his villains and understanding the, the depth of his rogues gallery. And I won't, and I won't spoil anything by... Uh revealing who's in there but let's just say that i got to draw a lot of villains that i didn't get to do in the uh in the original run of the series uh if you if you have some favorites uh more than more than likely they'll be showing up in this first arc that's, yep. that's cool to hear that is really really cool to hear um again the first issue drops it is on the 27th which is a really really close i cannot wait i am excited kind of a late birthday present for myself so i'm excited about this um, everyone should go pick it up. So, but this is a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate you taking time out today. It's been a while since we tried to put this together. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good night and good luck with everything. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate thank you. it. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. By God, I have had this Congress. 
For ten years, King George and his Parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies, and still this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in hell are they waiting for? All right, without further ado, let me bring on my extremely special guest here taking time out for us, Mr. William Daniels. Mr. Daniels, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. And, thank uh, you, Blake. And welcome to the show. I, I greatly appreciate this. Um, oh, good. First things first, um, let's get the plug out. Your book, There I Go Again, How I Came to Be Mr. Feeney, John Adams, Dr. Craig, Kit, and many others available at bookstores. Tell us about the book. Yeah, that seems like it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, tell us about this book, that, your memoir, pretty much. Tell us about it. Uh, you want me to tell you about it? Yes, well, please. I've been asking myself the same question. Uh, I just one day picked up a pen and started writing without any planning or, or looking back. thing, And out came this memoir. Uh uh, afterwards, I wondered why I'd done it, and then I thought, well, I think I was trying to recall the, uh, the journey I have made up until now. So I tried to do that, and I don't know if I succeeded or not, but there it is. Well, you definitely have a great journey, and I, I know for me, a lot of people go straight to, like, Knight Rider and Boy Meets World. I'm going to start, though, with something that I love, and that's 1776, one of my favorite musicals ever made uh, yeah and well, that's great yes we, yeah uh, you know we did it on Broadway uh, I think I played it for what funny uh, close to two years hmm? and then we did the film uh, for Jack Warner and uh, and it turned out pretty well too so uh, that was my experience with 1776 which took up about two years of my life yeah I know or more maybe it's a rare feat, though, to have the cast come from Broadway to film. For that, that's a big deal for any show. How did that well, transition yes, that, work? Uh, that was Jack Warner. He saw the show, and he decided he wanted the entire uh, uh, come out and do it for him. And so that's what he arranged, and that's what we did. Well, that's that's actually really cool. I know in this era, we have the Hamilton era. And people are looking back at 1776, and I know there are students that are now watching this show. Now, kids that are watching this, like, wow, what an amazing part of history. How does it feel to be a part of that kind of history now for this generation looking back? Well, it's very gratifying that they, uh, we hear, we get, uh, we get fan mail, and then we get letters from teachers who are saying they're, they're showing it in class, uh, the film, as a, as a lesson in history. And, uh, you know, that's very gratifying to hear that, that 
has a life of its own now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, I, I did mention earlier, we have Knight Rider, and you have one of the most well-known roles in Kit. When you were told about this role, what were your thoughts for playing a talking car? <laughs> oh, well, uh, that that was uh, kind of strange. I had, uh, for the pr producer, I had worked on another show for him. I think it was a movie of the week or something like that with uh, Bernadette Peters, I remember. And then he called me and he said, uh, Bill, I'm going to New York to, uh, to uh, try to sell this idea to... Uh, to the sponsors and uh, would you come over and do me a favor and read some lines he said it's about three pages i said sure so i went over to universal and he handed me the pages and i looked at it and uh, i said uh, this is the voice of a car he said yes i said i see okay so i started reading he said how about making it like a robot i said no and I continued reading. He said, how about, you know, Ma Bell voices? I said, would you just let me read this, please? And I read it and I uh, finished it. It was just three pages. And I went home and forgot about it. And about three weeks later, he called me and said, listen, Bill, this, uh, this uh, idea has sold. We've sold it. And we want you to do it. I said, well, you know, I'm doing same elsewhere. He said, I know that, but it's the same network, NBC, and we'll work around you. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal. So that's what I did. That's that is really cool and really lucky, actually, to be in two big shows at the same time like that. Yes, right. <laughs> it was. Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm very fortunate in my career. I've been a lucky fellow. Well, I actually was thinking, did you ever expect though, Kit, to still nowadays be this pop culture icon that has become till to this day? Say that again? Did you ever expect that Kit would still be a pop culture icon to this day? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I, have, I had no idea. You know, I was just uh, doing it at the moment, and uh, I thought they'd show it, and that would be the end of it. But it seems to have a life of its own, uh, which surprises me, frankly. <laughs> but uh, I'm happy that it uh, turned out to be something kind of iconic. And speaking of iconic... We get to Boy Meets World, and 90% of people, when I say William Daniels, it's Mr. Feeney. Take me behind the character of one of, actually, some people's most beloved character from television growing up, Mr. Feeney. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I just, uh, I just uh, thought, well, it was just another job, and, uh, but then, oh, God, I remember, uh, I tell a story to everybody. Uh, we were in New York on 54th Street, and uh, walking down the street uh, towards 8th Avenue, and uh, a bunch of kids got out of a bus, and they spotted me, and they said, Mr. Feeney, Mr. Feeney, and they started running towards me. Well, the coward that I am, I just ran around the block to escape them. And I did. And they came running after. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. But I escaped. That's really funny, actually. Um, uh, well, the character, I always say, that's the teacher everyone wanted. And we always say, is that a compliment for you? That say, when people say, that's the teacher that I would always want in my classroom. For you, as for the role you played, is that a compliment for you? Oh, oh, I see. Oh, yes, that's always a, that's always a compliment. Uh, 
uh, and it's you know really gratifying to hear. Uh, and I've even you know heard from teachers saying uh, they uh, they uh, we we had a couple that said teaching profession uh, because of wow, <laughs> which I found rather extraordinary, but uh, there it was. And teaching isn't great. a bad profession. You know, it's underpaid, but it's terribly important. So it was gratifying to hear. That is that's that is really great, actually. Now I do have yeah. to know, how did it feel to come back and reprise the role, fourteen years later in Grown Meat World? Because that was a big deal for a lot of us to see. How did that feel to come back and reprise the role? Oh, uh huh. Well, uh, Michael Jake show produced Boy Meets World uh, asked me to, to come into the beginning episode Girl Meets Girl uh, World and uh, you know trying to get it off its feet and uh, so I did and I think I did what money two two shows or three three, three shows uh, I did three shows and it was nice seeing those kids again but they're all grown up uh, Ben Savage I uh, saw him drive onto the lot when he was a kid, 12, you know, when we did Boy Meets One, and he drove onto the lot in this big truck, and I was grown up. <laughs> so there I was meeting with all of them again, and it was, it was very, it, it was like a homecoming. It was very, very nice. And they were sweet to you. Ben was treated you so Oh, sweet. I know. I know he did. I think I went up in the line, and he came up to me and said, don't, don't worry, Bill, we'll just take that over again. And he was, he was like, comforting me. Uh, he's a great kid. Well, he's a great man. He's a young man now. Yeah. They're all terrific. I, I bump into them every once in a while, and it's, it's nice to see them. Yeah, I will say, I think it might have been a season two episode where we actually went back to Philly, and they're in the yard, and I literally had flashbacks just watching you guys in the yard, in the old set. And it was a really cool moment to watch. It was really cool. So. Right. Right, right. That's good. Yeah, so. Well, I think, I think I'm actually going to wrap things up here. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out. Oh, I know, I know you're a busy man, and I greatly appreciate it. Um. Okay. If you want to give one more plug for the oh, book, good. one more plug for the book, sure. and then we'll get out of here. So go right ahead. What's that? A plug for the book. Bot. What, Bonnie? A plug for the book. Are you going to do something, Blake? Um, I can. I'll, you know, I'll do it. I can do it after we're done. It's no big deal. I'll take care of it. I'll leave you get a link up on our website well, so people can get to it. What is it? It's, uh, it's There I Go Again. Yeah, There I Go Again. How I Came to Be, Mr. Feeney, John Adams, Dr. Craig, Kit, and many others. Right. Available and there's book lots stores. more in there. We keep getting more and more people that say, well, that, that wasn't in there, that wasn't in there. He, he left out a lot. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I actually went to Wikipedia to get ready for this, and I'm like, wow, that's a lot. I know. That's a lot. <laughs> All right. Thank many, you. many decades. Yes, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. From vaudeville, from vaudeville to now. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's right. Again, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate this. Oh, sure. It was okay. my honor. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was. It, it's all. The pleasure's all mine. You're. You mean a lot to me as a person and as a fan. So thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome.
Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? They want me to quit. They say, John, give up the fight. Still to England, I say, good night forever, good night. For I have crossed the Rubicon. Let the bridge be burned behind me. Come what may, come what may. Commit bonds of crocodiles. All say we'll rule the day. They'll be held to pay in fiery purgatory. Through all the gloom, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? I see fireworks. Pageant and pomp and parade. I hear the bells ringing out. I hear the cannons roar. I see Americans, all Americans, free forevermore. For more information on our show, including where you can find us on social media or watch the show on YouTube, go to theblankandsellshow.com. Don't forget to comment or leave a rating and review, and we will read it on the show. Thank you so very much. Goodbye, and good night. Bye.